Well, good evening. I feel very unworthy to be on this <laughs> place because the preaching that has occurred from this uh, podium here has um, pierced most of our hearts in this room uh, at one time or the other. And so as we get into talking about the Constitution and as we get into talking about the law and government, I, I don't want us to ever forget about the centrality of the cross. Uh, because as we begin uh, to get fired up uh, and, and see what our founders said about this great land and, and how it matters and how it's relevant uh, for today, uh, underlying all of what we are going to be talking about is that all have sinned and fallen short and that Jesus Christ, through his love and his mercy, forgave us and said, if you will accept my gift, you can have eternal life. And uh, as I lecture uh, around the country and, and, and in other countries, uh, it, it, that centrality of the cross uh, gets lost very quickly when I'm in a secular, uh, in front of a secular government or in, in a secular academic uh, atmosphere and even in a church. So let's start with the centrality of the cross even before I talk about God's design for the state because um, we've got a lot of things that are happening in the world and there's a lot of spheres that, uh, we, are, that we all partake in. Uh, some of you are fathers and so you're part of families. Uh, you have, uh, you're raising children. Um, others of you are in, in the labor market, so there's the economic sphere out there. We have church. We have the religious sphere out there. Uh, and then we have government. Now, God has something to say about all those spheres. And, you know, I, I think we're going to find tonight that the sphere of uh, security and securing our liberty, securing the blessings of liberty, you know, that's going to be something that, yeah, God even says that, you know, government, you've got a role here. That's your role. That's your role. But when we get to family. And the question of a man and a woman getting married and procreating and having children and then raising those children and controlling and directing the upbringing of that child. You all are men of God here. Who does God delegate this sphere to? This can be just like law school. You can shout it out. Us. Does he give it to government? Is, is it government's job to raise our children and make decisions with regard to their education, for example, you know, or their medical decisions? Um, the church and religious conscience, who does God delegate that sphere to? Does he give that to government? I, I'm seeing some familiar faces in here uh, that I've been working with the last couple weeks uh, where God has in a very serious way, invaded this sphere. Counselor Coleman, man of God, stepping up, preserving the church. Bill Johnson in the back, God bless you for what you do. Where government 
And correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, these guys aren't going to believe me, counselor, if I tell them this, but correct me if I'm wrong. Did we just look at a proposed government regulation that says the government has the right to come in and decide what a religious activity is within the, within the church? Yes or no? Yes. And, and, and was this a Sharia-controlled country or was this a local government within, you know, walking distance or driving distance here? Right here. Increasingly, increasingly, the government is taking over this sphere. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Did this government action, proposed government action, yes or no, say could the government official decide to come in and take every paper and record of a church and look it over to decide whether the church was complying with the way the government thought the church should be running? We're going to talk about that, too. He said, not legally. Education, where does that sphere come from? Where does that sphere go to? Us. Now, to be sure, does the government have an interest in education? Sure it does, but guess what? Who decides to delegate the education of your child, perhaps, to the government if they want to? We do. And God gives uh, each one of you, and, and for each one of these spheres, um, we've got, we can, uh, and I'm going to give you all a book at the end here, where, uh, where all the biblical and scripture is there to show you, yes, everything you're saying is absolutely true, and I can go to scripture, and I can show that I'm supposed to train my child up in the Lord, and I can go to scripture, and I can see um, that government is supposed to, you know, protect the homeland, uh, and, and, and condone that which is good and punish that which is evil. There is a role for government. But let's look at God's design for the state here briefly. In, in law school, we say lex rex versus rex lex. A bunch of Latin terms that, that really divides and shows you where the battle is. And the question is, the king can do no wrong because the king is the law versus no one is above the law, not even the king. And that's the battle we're going to see played out all evening tonight. What is, uh, why, why do we see government separated into different branches here. I've got the government up here all over for you. And, and we've got the, the, the United States Congress, the White House, the Supreme Court, and, and this whiteboard here will represent the states. So we've got the government all over the place. But why is that power separated? Yeah. So no one has too much power. Why, why do we need to worry about that? I can't tell you how many um, of my professor friends that have all these fancy letters after their name that makes them think they're smart. And they say, we're all born good, you know, so we should kind of begin with that premise. And, and then I ask them if they're a parent, and, and usually they're not, or if they are, it gets them thinking all of a sudden. And I say, well, remember when your child was a baby, and, and remember that little rattle that you gave your baby? And the baby had the rattle and was playing with his very happy. Now we introduce a second child. And the second child comes in. Does the first child with the rattle crawl over and say, hi, I would like to share this with you? 
I would like to share my power with you. No. In fact, if the second child would like to partake, partake in, the, in the rattle fund, what does the first baby do? He takes it and says, no, it's, it's mine. It's mine. Well, brothers in Christ, those babies grow up. And some of them work in this building. Some of them work in this building. And some of them work in this building. That's right. And that rattle is power. And, and if, if they can keep that power, they would say, it's mine. And so our founders, in a very brilliant way, said, you know, you know, because of the sinful nature of man, we need to separate this power. And so the way it's supposed to work is that government is supposed to you know, separate power. And I want to make sure that even though we start out with the centrality of the cross tonight, you may, that, you, that you don't think at the end of the night that I'm, I'm suggesting that we should move toward a theocracy, because I'm not. Uh, I am suggesting that men of Christ and women of Christ need to be able to participate in the process, and government must not exclude them. And by the end of the night, you're going to see how government is very quickly moving to exclude you from being part of the governing process. Because uh, we're not looking for a theocracy, but we are looking to be part of the process. Now, Romans 13.1, everyone must submit. 13.1, everyone must submit. We're supposed to submit to the government. We're supposed to be obedient to the governing authorities. Um, why? Because he's God's servant to do good. The security sphere. We're not supposed to be out there getting our own justice when somebody makes us mad. Now, I know it would be really fun because we've got a really, really big Bible study to say, hey, guys, and we've all got real close over the last couple of years. I need all 80 of you right now. This is what they're doing to me. Let's go take care of it. No, that's not the way you think. God says, no, that's not, we're not going to handle things that way. We've got government here to condone that which is good and punish that which is evil. And we are supposed to, and we've been told by God that we are supposed to submit ourselves to those governing authorities. Now, we'll get to a different place when the governing authorities demand that you do something that God says you must not do or demand you to not do something uh, that God commands you to do. That's a different story in a, in a different lecture on a different night. Uh, but tonight, um, we see that the government and, and, and our nation is this, it's this incredible, it's this incredible experiment. We've decided instead of having the biggest gun gets to decide what the policy is going to be, we're going to use our elected representatives to say what the law should be. And that we can, uh, being informed by, you know, uh, the different things that inform us, influence our legislatures and hopefully they'll do the, the right thing. And if they don't, we can throw them out of office the next time they're up for a vote. A great experience. But that's a tremendous amount of power. If you go look at the Constitution, the Constitution says that the president is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. The Constitution says that the folks over here can fund armies and declare war. And in this nation, do you know what that means? 
That means that the folks that work in this building can literally obliterate uh, an entire nation off the face of this earth if they choose to do so. That's a tremendous amount of power that we have delegated to the folks that work in these buildings. And I had the privilege of working in all three branches of this government. But before I was able to have the privilege of exercising that power, I had to put my hand on the Holy Bible and put my other hand toward heaven and promise and affirm to uphold the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, so help me God. Why do we take that oath before we give somebody the privilege of exercising tremendous amounts of power? Every day, the ink in my pen decided whether or not somebody was going to go to jail for the rest of their life or not. Why, why did before I was given the privilege of putting on a black robe and sitting on a bench and making decisions that impacted people's lives, why was I required, so help me, God? It's to remind myself and every person that takes that oath that no one, not even the king, is above the law. Not even the president, not a member of Congress, not a United States senator, not a member of the United States judiciary. And I would venture to guess, if you asked the 500-plus men that work in that first building, and some of the folks that work in this building, and most of the folks that work in this branch of government, why they take that oath, very few today would be able to answer that question. They would probably say it's tradition. It's tradition. If we remove the self-evident truth from the law, we're going to be in a very, very bad place very, very quickly. Let me show you uh, how it's supposed to work. Tonight, this power cord is going to represent power because it's a power cord. And at the end of this power cord, you notice red tape because when government uses its power, it usually makes red tape. Now, before anybody under our Constitution in this building here or that building there is allowed to act, they have to, before they can use their power, they have to go and find a power source and plug into. If they don't have a power source that they've plugged into, then their action and the exercise of their power is illegitimate and unconstitutional. Right. And so if you go to the Constitution, you're going to find a bunch of power sources, that the, uh, not a lot, but a few of the power sources that, that Congress can plug into, and a, and a few power sources that uh, the White House and the executive branch can plug into. All the rest of the power in the United States uh, is reserved where? Where else is the rest of the power in the United States, if it's not in the power source here? It's in the states or in you, the people. 
And so Congress, for example, uh, when it passed the the Affordable Care Act, it had to, that was going to be a federal law. Uh, It had to plug into a power source somewhere. Now, everybody was telling, you know, the world that they're plugging into the commerce power because in the, in the Constitution it says that Congress has the power to regulate commerce among the states. And they said, well, health care is power, so that's got to be, you know, that's got to be in a legitimate power source. So we will plug in there. What they didn't tell you, probably, unless you were reading very, very closely and, 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 and not watching TV but, uh, but, but, but studying some very, very fine print, they also said the other power source that we're really using is the taxing power. Because in the Constitution, the, the Congress has the power to raise taxes and spend money. All right? And so when this law then goes to the Supreme Court, this law or any other law, and the exercise of power goes to the Supreme Court, the question is, did the government, when it passed the law, have a proper power source? Did it plug into a power source? And if it plugged into a power source, did they act within the scope of that power source? Think of a dimmer switch going on too high or, or, or plugging in your toaster and, and your hair, wife puts on the hair dryer and something else gets plugged in and all of a sudden they're outside the power source. When the case gets to the Supreme Court, the president, the executive branch, sends uh, the president's lawyer, and in in our constitutional system, that's called the Solicitor General of the United States, uh, and he directs the Solicitor General of the United States to argue to the Supreme Court that, yes, Congress plugged into a power source, and that proper power source is the taxing power. Supreme Court, a majority of the Supreme Court agreed, and so that law becomes law. So that's the way it's supposed to work so far, but, but that's only the first step. That's only the first step. Not only must the government plug into a proper power source when it uses its power to make a law, but it must also read the rest of the Constitution. Because when it engages in the exercise of government power that interferes with unalienable liberty, on your fundamental rights under the Bill of Rights, the government cannot do that. And so even though the government, assuming the government plugs into a proper power source, and assuming the government acts within the scope of that power source. If the government uses its power this time to make red tape in a way that interferes with your freedom of speech or the free exercise of your religious conscience or due process, what does the court do? What the court's been doing is over the years, the court created a, and we can discuss whether this is a good idea or not later, but, but the court brings out a microscope. It brings out its Supreme Court microscope, and it says, government, you're using your power in such a way that is interfering with a fundamental, unalienable liberty protected by our Constitution. So we're going to put your government action under the microscope. And we're going to look at it very closely because you're messing with unalienable, fundamental liberty. And then the court gives what we call in constitutional law, gives the law strict scrutiny. And it looks at the law and it says very, very carefully, the highest standard of review under the law in America, and says to the government, you better come forward with the most compelling reason possible under the law, the highest standard possible of why you are interfering with somebody's fundamental right. And even if you come forward with one of those really fundamental reasons, like Chicago's going to get blown up tomorrow in an instant or something, if you don't do this, 
Even if you come up with a compelling government reason, you better also show the court that you're using the least restrictive means possible in your law to accomplish that compelling government, reason, that compelling government interest. So whatever the means you're using in this law to accomplish a, a very compelling government uh, interest, it better be the least restrictive means or this law is going to be invalid and we're going to strike it down. Why? Again, because the government is using its power in a way that is substantially interfering with your fundamental liberties. That's the way it worked for many years. That's the way it is ostensibly working uh, now. So you would think, pastor, if the government passed a law tomorrow, that said, you know what, there's been a lot of um, uh, drunk driving accidents on the weekend. And so we've got a legitimate reason to start regulating the, the, the level of alcohol that people are drinking on the weekends. In fact, and so we're going to ban the drinking of all alcohol on the weekends. You would think, based on what I told you so far, that that law, once it got challenged, and when it came to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court would bring out a microscope because otherwise I'm not going to be able to administer communion this Sunday. Or my parishioners will face jail time. Guess what? The court doesn't bring out the microscope anymore on that kind of law. Hang on to that thought. Because I want to go through various areas uh, of the Constitution and how it impacts your life as a Christian and where we are today. Uh, I'll begin with uh, the Establishment Clause. And the Establishment Clause it sa says that uh, the government can't pass as a law, can't pass a law. It says these folks over here cannot pass a law. They cannot use their power to create red tape in a way that passes a law that um, uh, respecting the establishment of religion. Now, when you combine that with the free exercise clause, it's genius. It's a pretty good idea. These guys here cannot create a Sharia state, they can't create any part, they can't take one particular, uh, uh, they can't take one particular denomination and say, this is going to be the doctrine of the United States of America and all legislation heretofore afterwards must be consistent with the religious doctrines of the fill in the name of the church. Now there are some countries around the world that have governments that have clauses in their constitution that do just that. But our founders desired to protect religious liberty, so they did just the opposite. They, passed, they wrote a constitutional provision that said, government, don't pass a law respecting the establishment of religion. Don't establish a government religion. Don't pick one out and give it all a favor and, and have everybody else discriminate against. And when you combine that with the free exercise clause that said, you cannot also pass a law that interferes with anybody's free exercise of their religious conscience. And so the government doesn't get to pick its religion and have an official government religion that all legislation has to be consistent with. At the same time, the government cannot use its power in any way to interfere with the free exercise of your religious conscience, whatever it is. Whatever it is. And so those two clauses together, in a brilliant, genius way, protect religious liberty. But you notice they've got a corpse sitting over here. And you got nine 
folks that work in that court. And there's a bunch of them over here that really truly do believe that because they've been to law school and because they, they're special, that they get to change what the Constitution means. And so what has happened over the years uh, in the Establishment Clause is that instead of saying you cannot establish a, a, a government religion, the court has said uh, in, in the Lemon case, uh, famous Lemon case, Lemon v. Kurtzman said, you know what? Not only can you not establish a religion, but everything you do, government, must have a secular purpose. You must have a secular purpose for everything you do, and every exercise of government power must not even symbolically endorse Christianity or any other religion. That's a very different establishment clause. Because under the, under the, under the, first, under the traditional version and under what the words actually mean version, we can't create a theocracy. And that's about it. A little more, but that's about it. Under this new version, and listen very carefully what they did, they said you must have a secular reason for everything you do. You cannot even symbolically endorse religion. Let me show you what the impact of that is. We've got the Christmas season coming up, which means that baby Jesus is going to be under attack again if baby Jesus shows up on the courthouse steps or in a government park. If baby Jesus is sitting on the courthouse steps or in the government park, is that establishing an official religious government that requires all legislation to be consistent with the religious tenets of that government? No. So would baby Jesus sitting in the park violate the Constitution? No. If a government official puts baby Jesus in the government park, though, and the Establishment Clause means you must have a secular reason for the law and you must not even symbolically endorse religion, does baby Jesus now violate the Constitution? Yes. So, in, and, and let me give you an example of a case where, uh, where the Christians thought they won because they said baby Jesus can be on government property. Baby Jesus was on government property, but, you know, if you take Santa Claus and Frosty, I guess, and the soldier and Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer, and, and, and if you hide Jesus good enough, the court said, well, it's no longer um, endorsing religion because you can't see baby, baby Jesus is hidden enough, so this must be a secular display. Same idea if you had the Ten Commandments in a park somewhere. You put the Ten Commandments in a park, hey, symbolically endorses Christianity. But if you put, you know, the Magna Carta and, and, and a bunch of other things and you hide the Ten Commandments, you hide God good enough, they, uh, the Supreme Court may say you're not violating the Establishment Clause. Now that's going to make you a little bit angry, and probably did. But now let me show you what that means. Because what the court has just done is they've just removed you from being relevant in the American constitutional framework. Let's go before the Constitution for a second. Go back to our Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident. They're all created equal, endowed by their creator, capital C, folks, with certain inalienable rights. Inalienable, it's a legal property term, means you can't, 
uh, you can't take it away. It's there from the beginning of time to the end of time. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Why are these truths self-evident? Where does God say he puts the law? He puts the law in our heart. And our founders understood that. Um, do we have a... I know we had one marker somewhere. I lost it. I got, I got it. God puts the law in our hearts. And with regard to our personal conduct, the good or bad, right or wrong, that doesn't change over time, does it? I tell my students, you know, if you, if you cheat on an exam, do you need to read the law school policy manual to know whether you did something right or wrong? No, God puts that on your heart. And not only does it for our own personal conduct, but he, pur- he provides these first principles that government can also look to to know whether their exercise of government power is good or bad, right or wrong, just or unjust, constitutional or unconstitutional. Don't establish an Islamic state in the United States of America and you are in the plus column and that doesn't change from the beginning of time to the end of time. Instead of having a standard that was here from the beginning of time and will be here at the end of time, the folks on the court over here that just changed what the Establishment Clause means, who's ever in power now gets to decide on any given day what is good and what is bad. And in fact, they say there is no such thing as good or bad because there's no moral absolutes. This is a moral absolute. And if you have a moral absolute, you can't change the law if you want to. So they say there's no such thing as a moral absolute. Much of academia says that. And if you want to have a lot of fun with somebody who has a lot of letters after their name and they're really arrogant and they think they're really smart and they say there are no moral absolutes, you just ask them if they're absolutely sure. Because what have they just done? They've just stated an absolute. That there are no absolutes. We know that God in his word has revealed in his word some moral absolutes. He reveals it in the awesomeness of his creation. Our founders understood that that's why they said we hold these truths to be self-evident. And the promise of that declaration made its way in the Constitution. Free exercise of religious conscience. Due process. Freedom of expression. You cannot share the gospel. You cannot share the good news of the gospel. You cannot go and make disciples of all nations if you do not have free exercise of religious conscience and freedom of expression, and the other side knows that. And the other side knows that. It's a self-evident truth. And if there's self-evident truth, then the folks in these buildings are limited by, the exor- by, by those self-evident truths, which is why the microscope used to come out. And when government interfered with one of those self-evident truths, one of those fundamental rights, the government action got struck down. And it happened over and over again. Let me give you an example in the family here. 
Let me step back and just show you how dangerous this is first over here. Because it's more than saying that baby Jesus can't be in the park. When somebody says you have to have a secular reason for everything you do, let me give you uh, an example of what could happen. Imagine that uh, a constituent comes into the legislature here in Lansing and says, uh, I'm a uh, physician. And says, you know, what's all this talk about physician-assisted suicide? You know, I, the Hippocratic Oath says I'm prohibited from doing this. This is going to damage the reputation of the medical profession if we are allowing physicians to assist people in the killing of suicides, assisting in suicide killings. Would you please pass a law, uh, Madam Legislature or Mr. Legislature, to prohibit physicians from assisting in suicide? So the legislature says, yeah, that's, I, I certainly will do that. Protecting the reputation of the, of the medical profession, that's a very good reason. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do that, and I'll get right on that. Uh, the law gets written, signed by the governor, becomes law of the land, law of the state. Different legislature in another state has a different constituent come in. And this constituent says, what's all this talk about physicians assisting people in killing themselves? Don't you know that at the beginning, God created man and woman. He created them in his very image. He said, what I've created is very good. He said, I have a plan for your life. Because I've made you in my image, you have inherent value, such inherent value that thou shalt not murder Will you please, counselor, because all human life has inherent value, will you please pass a law prohibiting physicians from assisting in suicide killings? And the legislator said yes. And, and, and because legislatures you know, have a limited amount of time, he says, you know what, I'm going to save myself time. I'm going to call my buddy up in Michigan who just passed that same law. And, and he uses the exact same language, and the and, and law goes and, and becomes the law of the land in, in, in Indiana. So two statutes worded exactly the same. Now both of those statutes work its way to the Supreme Court. Guess what? The first one's considered constitutional because it's informed by a secular purpose and doesn't symbolically endorse a religion. And the second one is considered unconstitutional, not because of how it's written, but because the reason the legislature used to pass it was informed by a sacred reason. And there wasn't a secular purpose. This is nothing less than a movement to make your participation in this constitutional republic an irrelevancy. If they can take away your right to even participate in the process, they've won. And your right to share the good news of the gospel and your liberty to go make disciples for Jesus Christ of all nations is at great risk. The family. Fundamental right of a man and a woman to get married, procreate, and control and direct the upbringing of their children. You don't need anything to tell you that that's a self-evident truth. God has put that on your heart the first time you had a baby and your wife put that, you put that baby on your wife's breast 
and she held it there, and you're having that moment, I venture to guess that the very first thing you did not think about was the United States Congress or the United Nations. Both of them thinking they have more right to tell you how to raise that child than you do. You knew at that very moment and in that very instant that God had given you the high calling and responsibility of training that child up in the Lord. He put that on your heart. And for a long time, the Supreme Court agreed. For a long time, the Supreme Court agreed. Let me give you an example with regard to raising children. Um, could you imagine sometime uh, in the United States of America, the government using its power to pass a law that says you must send your child to the government school? If you're shaking your head like, well, that might happen, but I'm a little bit scared, I need to tell you it happened. It's already happened in the United States of America. The government of Oregon passed a law that said you must send your child to the government school. You cannot send, and it was against the law to send your kid to a private school. It was against the law to send your kid to a religious school. And God forbid you even think about sending your child uh, to your own home to have him schooled. When that law went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said, Oregon, you're messing with fundamental inalienable liberty here. What's your compelling reason for saying that you have to send the kid to the government school? The state obviously could not sustain its law, and the law was knocked down and considered unconstitutional. It violated one of those self-evident truths. Today, I don't think so. Today, you've got uh, Supreme Court citing treaties uh, that the United States is not even a signatory to, uh, that talk about the government being the one that makes the final decision in the best interest of a child. Now, if a parent has advocated their responsibilities and they've uh, beaten a child or abused their child or something, that's a different situation. If, if somebody's, you know, raped a child or done something horrible, then, then obviously, then that sphere of security, the government has the right to step in at that time and protect that citizen. But when we're talking about choosing to send your child to a religious school as opposed to the government school, a um, lot different question here. And the UN treaty I'm talking about is being cited by courts all throughout the United States. Uh, it's not, the United States has not uh, ratified it. The president has signed it, but it's not become the law of our land. But yet these court, the courts are citing that as, you know, we ought to follow that treaty. It says the government gets to make that final decision. So anytime now, not just when you're abusing a kid, but anytime you have a question, you know, son, I'd like you to do your homework before you go uh, watch TV. No, I have rights. I'm not making this stuff up. We don't have to make this stuff up because it's been implemented all the way around the world. Procreating. You have a fundamental right to have a child. Man and woman have a right to marry and procreate, raise a child. Now, this other idea that there's not a moral absolute, that you get to make it up as you go along and who's ever in power gets to make it up because they know better, that started with a... Um, uh, a president at Harvard University who read Darwin's Origin of the Species. 
And he said, wow, I like this idea of evolving uh, things. And if it's working for biology, I want to use it for the law because I can remove Christianity from being an influence. I can remove the idea of a moral absolute uh, impacting the law as being part of the law if I can have this evolving process. And so he hires a dean with the sole purpose of implementing that philosophy. And the very first person through that law school that makes it to the U.S. Supreme Court is Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. And in, in Buck v. Bell, there was a young woman named Carrie Buck that some government authority decided, you know, wasn't smart enough. She was not worthy of having children. And so the government in its infinite wisdom decided that Carrie Buck ought to, you know, be sterilized. Her and many thousands, tens of thousands of others. Many years later, we learn that Carrie Buck is a woman of normal intelligence and perfectly, perfectly wonderful creation of God who the government, using its power, took away her right to have a child. And when the government's action was presented to the Supreme Court, Justice Holmes, using this new approach to interpreting the Constitution, says three generations of imbeciles are enough. The law will be upheld. If you wonder what happens when you remove the moral element of the law and you leave it to who's ever in power to decide what is good or bad or right or wrong, you very quickly get to Hitler gave a talk one night and a very elderly woman broke down and cried. And I said, oh man, what did I do now? And she came up afterwards and told me that her husband had taken their child to the euthanasia centers um, to be euthanized because he had a deformed hand. And we don't hear too much about what the Nazis did before the Holocaust. But if you can remove the element of the law, that it's a moral element, and you can put evil in its place, then everything Hitler did was legal. And when you remove that moral element of the law so that you can take your own child to be euthanized how much easier do you think it was for the German nation to accept the mass extermination of other people for other reasons because all life no longer has value life only has value if government says it does and if you want to see a picture of that moral element of the law being removed in the church study the history of the German, Luth- of the German church Uh, the Christian church at the time of Hitler. Because that cross there, over my dead body if I was there, but that cross was taken out and a swastika put in its place. All pictures of Jesus Christ were taken down and replaced with Hitler. And the Holy Bible was removed and replaced with Mein Kampf. There is a cost 
to removing the moral element of the law. Darwin's origin of the species emerges as the new legal paradigm, the new legal theory of how to approach constitutional governance and how to approach law. And so now let me take you to the issue of life. We hold these truths, again, to be self-evident, that all are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain liberty and life and liberty. You can't take away that life and liberty. And that promise is found in the Constitution, in the 14th Amendment, and in the 5th Amendment of the Constitution. It says, government, when you use your power, you must, if you even think about taking away life, you better be using due due process. There may be a proper time, and we can debate uh, among theologians, uh, the propriety of the death penalty. But again, not tonight. (laughs) Different time, different place. But if you, you, life has so much value. It has so much inherent value that the Constitution requires due process before you take it away. Well, government can regulate conduct that is unhealthy, dangerous, or immoral. You with me so far? And that's the proper role of government, maintaining our security, protecting us, punishing that which is evil. So if there is conduct that is unhealthy, dangerous, or immoral, government can use its power to regulate that conduct and make murder, for example, illegal. And so 47 states, before Roe versus Wade, said the unhealthy, dangerous, and immoral conduct of partial birth abortion and abortion of an unborn living child is wrong and illegal, and we're going to regulate that conduct as such. If you're on the other side, you got a problem, don't you? Because government can regulate conduct. So what do they do? They take conduct, and removing the moral element, they now say, we're going to take that conduct, and we're going to recharacterize it as liberty. Because if it's liberty, guess what? Liberty acts as a limitation on exercise of government power. Just like if I said freedom of speech earlier, if government said you couldn't speak, that would strike the law down because the liberty would be a limit on the exercise of government power. So they took the conduct of abortion and they recharacterized it as liberty and now they say, government, you can't stop abortion because it's a liberty. Very, very tricky. Now, if you want to see how powerful and important Mr. Darwin is in in this process. Uh, He's all over this. The Big Bang first. It was a contraception case. Uh, Government was regulating contraception. And the case goes to the Supreme Court. And we had a justice on the Supreme Court that was, you know, I I should be careful on what I say about the Supreme Court, I suppose. but, um, But he was... can't say a bad word up here. He was determined. He was determined to remove Christianity and, and, and the moral element of the law and create a right of personal autonomy and abortion. Law comes, and all this doing is regulating uh, the sale of contraceptives. And he looks in the Constitution, and he can't find 
anything that says a person has a right to do whatever they want to, personal autonomy. He says, but if that's a liberty, this would work. And so he turns on a light, he shines it, and he looks really close. Can't find it. He says, maybe I'll look one more time. And as he was looking and shining that light on the Constitution really brightly, all of a sudden he noticed emanating out in the shadows of the First Amendment over there, oh, I see a P. And he shined it more, and he started, and he couldn't see anything in the Constitution, but he kept looking in the shadows over there, R-I-V-A-C-Y, privacy. And if you think I'm making this up, go read the opinion. That's exactly what he did. He made it out of whole cloth. That was the Big Bang. And this wasn't even a privacy case about personal autonomy. It was about privacy, about the government not being able to come into your bedroom. And we would all agree that we wouldn't like the government knocking our doors down. We've got parts of the Constitution to protect that. But he's created this new liberty now, the Big Bang. And so, stick with the Darwinism now. Evolving to the next contraception case, we've already got the right, we've got the liberty now of, of privacy and personal autonomy. We'll make it personal autonomy. We'll mean privacy to mean personal autonomy this time. And then the next case will continue to evolve. I, I, you know, someday I'm going to get those pictures like the, the, those silly evolutionists do where they, they're evolving something and, 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 and I'm evolving this right to personal autonomy to get to do whatever you want to because this is exactly what's happening uh, and, and, and it's exactly the approach that, that that Harvard professor wanted to happen. And he evolves next case, well, you know what? Abortion's kind of like contraception. So abortion, that's part of personal privacy again. That's, that's part of personal autonomy. You can do whatever you want to. So any government law now that regulates the unhealthy, dangerous conduct of abortion, we're not going to look at it that way. Now we're going to look at a government action interfering with a person's desire to do whatever they want to with their own body. And so they've recharacterized conduct as liberty and made it a fundamental liberty. Even though it's not in the Constitution, we're going to put it right next to the First Amendment and treat it just like the First Amendment. Very high burden. Not exactly the same kind of microscope, but the Supreme Court now will bring out a microscope of some kind if you're interfering with the personal autonomy right to abortion. So now how about partial birth abortion? That's, you know, that's the next we're evolving, right? And so, guess what? You may not have read this in the press, but the Supreme Court struck down a government law designed to stop partial birth abortion. Why? Because it interfered with personal autonomy. They didn't write it narrow enough away. You're killing the child in such a way you might be interfering with somebody's rights of personal. So go back and try again. When I was fighting these battles in England, two members of the United Kingdom's parliament introduced a bill to repeal the infanticide law. Why? Because if a woman has a right to abortion before birth, she has a right to abortion after birth. And so they didn't want to call it repealing the infanticide law because that doesn't sound good enough, so they call it post-birth abortion. The leading ethicists in the United States, in Princeton right now, is suggesting that a woman has a right to kill the child ethically. Um, I can't remember exactly how many days or weeks after the birth. If you remove the moral element of the law that all life has value because God created it in his very image, 
who's ever in power gets to decide what life is worthy and what life is not. So we saw the Big Bang and we saw it evolve. There used to be a law that regulated um, dangerous, immoral, and unhealthy sexual conduct. We've got some young people here, so I'm not going to get into the gross nature of the conduct that was being regulated. Supreme Court upheld that law using the moral absolute. Not too many years later, with a different group on the court, similar law comes up. This time the court looks at all those abortion cases and partial birth abortion cases and personal autonomy cases and says, you know what? This right of privacy and personal autonomy should also include the right to engage in whatever you want to do here. And so we're going to take that unhealthy, dangerous, and immoral sexual conduct that the government was regulating and we're going to call it liberty. And we're now going to strike laws down. But we would never extend it, the court says. This is what they always do. They say, but we would never extend it to other situations, like marriage. Well, sure enough, the first time that a same-sex marriage law was written, the way that the judge struck it down at the lower court level was he literally cut and pasted that language from the Big Bang and that was repasted in every case in the evolutionary process of personal autonomy and privacy and cut and pasted, ignored the language that said we would never extend it to something else and cut and pasted that same language that evolved all the way to marriage. The flip side works as well because... If somebody can take unhealthy, dangerous, and immoral conduct and recharacterize it as liberty, and so now it's going to be a limit on the exercise of government power instead of something government can regulate, what do you think they're going to do with the liberties that you enjoy right now that they don't like? Like the free exercise of your religious conscience and freedom of expression. They got a problem because normally, just like in the case that I told you about the school case where somebody asserted their religious liberty and, and their other liberty that you can't tell me I can't send my kid to a, to a religious school, they got a problem because that liberty is a fundamental liberty. The microscope comes out and what happens? The law gets struck down because the liberty acts as a limit on the exercise of red tape, on the exercise of government power. So the other side's got a problem. So guess what they do? They take that liberty of freedom of expression and the free exercise of religious conscience and they recharacterize it as conduct. Because if it's conduct, then government can regulate it. And so now we've got hate speech, we've got things like contempt, we've got things like harassment. All these forms of speech regulations and religious conscience regulation that are characterized in, 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 in terms of conduct that the government should be able to regulate. Pastors. A number of years ago, someone came to me and said, there's a pastor that just preached the word of God from the pulpit. And he's been arrested and put in prison. He said, well, what did he say? And he said, well, he read the Bible. 
and in a loving way, and in a very expository way for you expository preachers, um, applied it to contemporary times. Applied the self-evident, the moral absolute to times. I said, well, this was in Sweden, so I said, translate it, let me read it. And I read it, and I'm telling you, it could have been preached at this place right here or any place in, in, in the United States of America on any given day in any Christian Bible-believing church. It was the perfect case for a lawyer. There was so much love and so much truth in that message. Uh, and little gray hair, 70-year-old man preaching to a congregation of about 20. Prosecutor thought that what he was talking about in Romans that day was so, much, was so dangerous that he needed to go to jail because he was suggesting that engaging in sexual activity other ways between a man and a woman that are married is wrong. And so now someone asked me if I would represent Christian organizations around the world to defend this pastor. Um, if you wonder if God's got a sense of humor. You know, back then, that was about seven years ago at this point, and I would tell the story what was going on, and, and many pastors and, and many strong Christian, Bible-believing Christians said, wow, things are really bad over there. I'm glad we live here. And I kept telling them, no, it's here already, and it's coming here, and we'll cover that at the end here a little bit. And they, I, I kind of felt what Noah felt like when he would say, hey, there's a big storm coming, and everybody was laughing at him because, you know, I wasn't any prophet at all. I, I, I was just using reason and logic. I mean, it's happening here. We're, we see the same lawyers on the same side over here using the same arguments in the same court, and we've got the same law school. We've got the same legal stuff being taught in the law schools here. It's coming here, and now it's on our back door. He went to jail for preaching the word of God. Now, if you wonder if God's got a sense of humor, this one, there's a lot of stories that have tragic endings, but this one's got a pretty funny, good ending. God's got a sense of humor case gets to the Swedish Supreme Court and it becomes a big deal in the country. So it's, the whole thing's being broadcast on national television. The parliament shuts down for the arguments and everybody in the nation is, is watching this event. And the justices on the court said, well, we've read all the briefs and everything, but you know what? We really can't decide this case fairly if we cannot hear what was actually said. And so this sermon and this message in Romans that this prosecutor thought was so dangerous for 20 parishioners to hear from this little gray-haired pastor was broadcast live to the nation <laughs> from the Supreme Court. And, and in the end, the court um, released him on, on grounds of freedom of expression, and the free exercise of religious conscience. Whether that would happen today, I don't know. Things have changed dramatically um, from that time till, till now. Um, they take our liberty that, we, that they don't like and they recharacterize it as conduct because government can regulate the conduct. And so I started this talk tonight with what's happening in our local communities right here. I wasn't making up the same exact type of statute that he was prosecuted under. Very, very similar to that. It was what's going around right now. Um, I worked with 
a nurse who was working with a very sick person. And in her loving and compassionate way that she was, because she had 20 years of unblemished um, service, asked if, she said, can I pray for you? And the person who was sick was not offended by that request, but another nurse or somebody who was walking outside the door overheard her say, can I pray for you, to the patient. And felt offended, filed a complaint, and that nurse, after a lifetime of service, was fired, and the firing was upheld all the way through the British government. We're not talking again about some Sharia-controlled country here. We're talking about um, constitutional uh, democracies around the world. Um, I'm friends with a lawyer in Washington, D.C., who is working with a family who heard on their door in Germany. And they opened the door and the government authorities came in. You would think that after going through Hitler's Germany that a couple of generations later they wouldn't have forgotten their lessons. But the German authorities come in and say to the parents, we're not accusing you of abusing your child. We're not accusing you of neglecting your child. We are removing your children from your custody. And when they asked why, they said the government interest here is that you are a Christian and that you are schooling your children consistent with Christian principles and that in our country is not allowed. You must send your kid to the government school. It's coming. It's here. Um, kid wanted to say a prayer at graduation. You know, it happens all the time, I suppose. Um, and, well, I don't have the exact quote here, but it's in the book that I'm going to give you all tonight. Make sure I don't let you get out of here without giving you a book tonight. Um, where the judge, federal judge, says, and you better be sure I'm going to have a U.S. marshal there, and any of you thinking about praying or even thinking about it, you're going to jail. That's in America. We can talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into a furnace. We can talk about Daniel going into the lion's den. Um, there's, if you choose tonight to stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and say, that whatever the government does here, I am going to share the good news of the gospel and I am going to make disciples to all nations. There will be a cost. And that cost is going to increase uh, as, as the time goes by. I, I'm, I'm going to suggest you're not going to ever be Daniel in the lion's den um, because us brothers in Christ have gotten together here and we've, we're pretty close we may be Shadrach or Meshach in the furnace, but we're not going to be all alone. Uh, we're gonna, we'll, be, we'll be together here. Um, I have 
in these hands held the ashes of Christian brothers and sisters who have been burned to death because they exercised a freedom of expression and the free exercise of their religious conscience. The person that put those ashes in my hand said that he had been given them and said, give them to somebody in America because America is the last hope for Christianity. It's the last hope for freedom. And I don't know, that he put, he put them in my hand and, I, and there's been many times since that day that I wish he had not. Um, because this is a battle that there are a few victories. Um, but ours, I believe, is a duty to obey the word of God, obey the Great Commission. Um, and the results are God's. I've, my team in, in Africa, when I was a diplomat in Africa, um, were amazing. And they gave speeches all over, and all of a sudden, for the first time, the Congress over there began to understand that, wow, you know, we have the power and the authority to do something, and, and the president can't just tell us what to do, and we don't have to operate under a warlord, and freedom of expression and freedom of religious conscience matter and due process matters. And it was, it was this, oh, wow, I kind of feel like this is the best. This is why I became a lawyer. The day I left was the day that the international spotlight was no longer on that country. And so the people that were really doing the work there had their houses stormed and everything taken. Um, the lawyer that I worked most closely with on religious freedom and freedom of speech was abducted by the government and tortured to the point of death and he would have died had we not been able to get the international light back on what was happening and we got him out at the last moment in, into a New York hospital just before he died. These are stories that aren't meant to frighten you. They're just meant to let you know that there's a cost and that there are Christians out there from the beginning of time who, when they've been called, they, like Isaiah last week in church, said, here am I. Send me. That's where I guess I want to leave you tonight. I was going to go through 50 or 60 different examples of what's happening in the United States. If you want to, I can show them. But I think you get the idea. Where do we go from here? I know the pastor in this church, we've been talking a long time about being called. And I love our story when, when Joshua, when we're on the Jordan River and the promised land is right there and the water's rushing and it's way over everybody's head because it's the springtime. What do they do? They stepped right in because they knew that God was who he really was. Dr. Del Tackett says, you know, something like, um, um, do you believe what you believe is really true? Are you willing to step in to danger to ensure that your son or your daughter or your grandchild 
can hear the gospel from a podium like this so that you can share the good news of the gospel with somebody else at the end of the generation. Um, I've got another talk that I should give, but it would take an hour and a half, so we're going to stop here, on how you need to prepare yourself if you choose to uh, step forward here because you got to get right. There's a lot of things you got to do, and I'll maybe just leave you with one. Um, there's a, remember when we had the Krispy Kreme up here on the corner, for those of you that live in the Lansing area? I was here for a long time, and, and when the Krispy Kreme was free, you know, the light would go on. Well, I don't have high blood pressure, but, um, but it's right about where it almost shouldn't be, all right? So for a long time, I'm not supposed to, you know, I probably shouldn't be eating those things. So I know I'm not supposed to. My wife knows I'm not supposed to. So I drive by that Krispy Kreme, and I usually just drive right by. But what if that light's on? Because that means you get a free one. Well, I'm not going to buy a dozen. I'll just get the free one. That can't be that bad, right? I go in, and I'm, now I'm in the environment where I'm smelling all that thing. Oh, man. And I know I'm not supposed to be where I'm at right now. So I just take the free one, and I get out really quick. And I don't eat it, but I put it in the seat, but I didn't throw it away. I take it home. My wife's going to be home pretty soon. I haven't eaten it yet. Should I get rid of it? No, I don't get rid of it. But what I do, I take that Krispy Kreme, and, and, and this will be my Krispy Kreme. And, and, and I go put it in the refrigerator. Do I put it right in front? No, I put it at the bottom behind something that's green growing something in the very bottom shelf. It's my secret Krispy Kreme. What's your secret Krispy Kreme? Because if you choose tonight to step in this battle for truth. I'm telling you right now that the devil knows about that Krispy Kreme. And he will wait till the moment that you are doing the most possible for the kingdom before he exposes it to the world. And we all know Christian brothers and sisters who that's happened to. And so I'm telling you tonight, there's a lot at stake here. And I think we all can agree there's a lot at stake. So I challenge you to get a brother in Christ if you don't already have an accountability partner and I want you to hit your knees with that guy and I want you to share that Krispy Kreme and then go get it out of that secret place and throw it away. Get ready to serve an almighty God. But you've got to be ready to do that. Which means you've got to surrender everything. I mean, everything. And if you do that, what are you going to get? Well, Samson got his eyes plucked out. Daniel got thrown in a lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got tossed in a fiery furnace. Pastor Aki Green got thrown into jail. Forgive me, Brother Coleman, 
last week got profiled in international news on what a hater he was because he had the tenacity to write a constitutional analysis with yours truly that didn't even touch on the moral or political or legal issues, just on the constitutional issues. But you know what? Daniel walked out of that lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked out of that furnace. And what did they do? They proclaimed a mighty God. What did Daniel, what did Daniel do to get him into the lion's den? He was told, don't pray, right? Don't pray to the God. Don't pray to the living God. And so he says, no, I, I got to pray to the living God. But what did he do? Did he go into the privacy of his bedroom and say, God, please help me? No, what did he do? He opened those windows up in front of the government and did what he always did. He prayed to the living God. And then he walked out of that lion's den and proclaimed a mighty God. Samson, when he finally got his act together and surrendered, and that's a whole other talk we could give on him, those columns fell down. Those columns fell down. Aki Green walked out of a courtroom, a free man. My prayer for you tonight is that we never forget the centrality of the cross that we have the courage to be faithful to the moral absolutes that God reveals in his uh, word and in his creation and that we're willing to stand for truth so that the communities of the future, the families of the future um, can have God's truth uh, shared with him and, and have the um, all the blessings uh, that come from that. And so I'm going to end there. Um, I am going to open up for questions. I'll answer the toughest question that you have, so don't, don't hold back. Um, in the end, in the back, um, I have a, a book that covers a lot of what we just talked about, but in much, much more detail. And because we've talked about discipleship, we're going to take this to a new level. Um, you can either come take my class for $3,000 at the Pay Cooley Law School for $3,000 or something, or you can take that book for free, and I'll meet with whoever wants to go through a little program, and you can go through at the end of each section. I've got questions where you can study this stuff, and, and the good book tells us we're supposed to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have. If you want to be able to defend yourself and be able to defend the Christian moral absolutes, and very quickly tear apart the other side's arguments that are built on sand, I challenge you to spend some time in that book, um, answer the questions, and I'm, if, we can get, if you want to get a group together, I'll meet with you weekly, and we can, I'll buy the coffee, and we'll go through it. Uh, and, and then maybe when you get done, you can go get five or ten other men uh, and go through the process uh, with them. So... Um, free coffee in a group. Or if, if just one of you wants to do it, I'll meet with just, just one of you. Um, so that's my, my gift to you. There is a box in there you, uh, if you want to donate to cover the cost of the printing, you can, but it is truly a free book. I, if you don't have any money with you, you don't have my 
take it. If God's blessed somebody with, you know, prosperity, you want to throw in a couple extra bucks so, you know, the printing costs get covered, that's great. I don't care if they get covered tonight. I want the truth uh, to get into your hands uh, and, um, and give you an opportunity to study it. But that's where I'm going to leave, uh, and, and now I'll open it up to questions. Yeah, pa- pastor's been pastor's been doing a long series of uh, messages that kind of are preparing us to to answer the calling. But I do a talk. Uh, will you recognize God's ringtone when He calls uh, when He calls you to defend the faith? And and that's just a, it's about an hour and a half. And I can you know get a group of men together or get a group of men and women together, and I'll come and give it to you. Well, he, what he's talking about is that uh, uh, the president, uh, and it's not just President Obama. Other presidents have done this. Um, they, are, they, are, they, they use their power uh, in such a way to create law by itself without going through the legislative process of convincing a majority of the House of Representatives and a majority of the Senate and, and, and then having the president sign it in, in in, in what's called a presentment clause. Um, is there a good argument that much of what he's done is unconstitutional? Absolutely. But until somebody challenges it, until you have a majority of the court these days that is willing to recognize it, it's probably not going to happen. Now, remember I talked about uh, power sources? Congress has a number of power sources that could be used uh, and in the past have been used uh, to put a check on the exercise of government power. And I've got to tell you, I'm much less concerned with the exercise. Uh, I mean, yes, I'm concerned with the appointments that ignore the advice and consent of the Senate uh, because the advice and consent of the Senate is my check. I can vote on, I can go talk to uh, our United States senators and, and vote against them if they give or don't give advice and consent properly. But to completely bypass the advice of consent and just appoint a czar and then give that czar the same kind of powers that you would normally give a high-level officer that would require advice and consent, that bothers me, but it doesn't bother me near as much as the executive branch's current position that it has the power to kill American citizens without due process and without going to court and that it has killed a number of American citizens using that process. Uh, I was just, and, and I'm thinking, if President Bush or somebody had done, where's the press reporting this? 
And, and again, I'm going to stay away from the politics because there are as many Republicans and as many Democrats that are separated on this issue. Well, there's the national security uh, requirement, and so we should be able to, if the president thinks somebody ought to be killed, that, you know, let him take a drone and take him out. Now, to his credit, the president says, even though I've got that power, I'm only going to exercise that power if the American is in a different country. And the American is working with Al-Qaeda, and there's going to be something at the last, and there's an imminent chance that something's going to bad that's going to happen. Well, that sounds nice, but then how do you explain the Americans that weren't terrorists that were killed, that happened to be in the vicinity? And if you combine that, what you're raising is, is, is the concern over the exercise of power. And there have been a number of documents that are now declassified, of which I have the copies if anybody wants to look at them, or you can probably find them online at this point because they are declassified and it's proper to look at them. And they've actually been reported on a little bit. Where uh, Homeland Security policy memo explaining to law enforcement, and maybe some of our, our law enforcement folks in here can, can help us because um, uh, you may have received something from Homeland Security, that describes the type of person uh, that is a potential threat. The word Christian is included in there. Um, the um, idea of somebody that has a single interest and then the example that's given is a pro-life person, is in there. Uh, West Point has written a white paper with a very similar description. They are basically categorizing a lot of the folks in this room because of your belief systems as you could be a potential threat. Now, I, I don't know, I've never seen anybody take those white papers and that Homeland Security policy I just told you and combine it with the drone striking of American policies, but that scares me when I read those two things together. And next time I, you know, I was recently giving a talk over in uh, Strasbourg, France, where the European court is, and I'm thinking, looking at the sky all the time now, because I am in a foreign country, pro-life, Christian, speaking in places like this. Just, I mean, I'm being trying to lighten it up a little bit. But you get the idea, your concern, I think, is appropriate. There's the exercise of government power. Now, the answer to your question is likely not the courts. Uh, the, the answer to your question is convincing Congress to exercise their powers because Congress has a, a number of powers. They have, for example, well, they ultimately have the impeachment power. Um, but obviously, that's a huge political a lot of political capital if you exercise the impeachment power. That would solve your problem of a president not appointing who you want to, I suppose. But you're not going to see that happen, probably. But the House of Representatives, all bills under the Constitution, all bills with regard to spending of any kind, originate in the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives has not exercised that spending power in years in a way that would check the other branches of government. It could shut, it can literally, you talk about shut down government, it could literally control where government goes, and that's the, that's, the, that's the one power that Congress has that serves as a check on the Senate and serves as a check on the Supreme Court and serves as a check on, uh, on the President. I mean, if, you, if you're worried about a, a Supreme Court that's 
too judicially active or if you're concerned with a, a president that's being too uh, active in, in, in too fast and loose with his constitutional powers. Um, and, and, and this is the nerd in me. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. I was watching C-SPAN one day and it wasn't a very big hearing. I'm thinking, wow, this is... But it was a great conversation. Uh, the, the, the guy that was talking to the... Uh, that was talking to the Senate Judiciary Committee said, you know, if, if Congress exercised its powers, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts could wake up one day and the Supreme Court and the entire federal judiciary could be just Justice Roberts and his desk. And he was right. Because under the Constitution, the whole United States federal judiciary, the only thing that's in the Constitution that has to be there is a Supreme Court. And there's nothing in the Constitution that says there has to be any more than one person on that court. And so if Congress wanted to use its tax and spending power all of a sudden you know, in ways that would start to try and influence um, or, uh, or start to um, make the other branches of governments be less fast and loose with their constitutional power, they could. Um, they haven't been willing to do that uh, either under Democratic or Republican administrations, which is why you see more and more power leaving that far branch of government and being subsumed in this branch of government and over here. I mean, every time the Supreme Court says, you know what, uh, we're going to create a test to decide whether or not a law uh, or a government action is proper or not, well, what have they just done? Anytime, and they do that all the time. They've just taken power away from the politically accountable branches of government because guess what? Once they make up a test to decide whether or not a government law is good or bad or not, who do you think they put in charge of, of handling that test? Themselves. <laughs> and every time they do that, they take just a little more power away from the Congress and the White House. And, you know, someday I'm thinking the Democrats, the people with the D's after their name and the people with the R's after their name over here, they're going to kind of say, hey, you know what, let's put our political differences away for a minute and start thinking as an institution because, you know, by letting the president do all these things, as an institution, we've given up our power to do it. Or by allowing the Supreme Court to do all these things, you know, we have, uh, we have advocated some of the power that is expressly actually in the Constitution. Um, but again, these guys and women are pretty afraid of losing office. And so, you know, sometimes it takes courage to exercise the power you have. Yes. Yeah, I, I you know, I am... Not up to date as much as I should be on that, other than the fact that they've delayed it for a trial. Now, whether or not it's a jury or not, I'm not even sure about, about that. But that is a case that's going to uh, decide whether or not, um, is it Michigan's marriage, whether Michigan you know, can have a moral absolute in its definition of marriage. And I can tell you right now, there are people lining up uh, at friendly clerk's offices ready to get married uh, to, to make a national statement uh, about that if that judge rules that way. Now, I believe the state attorney general of Michigan has uh, issued some type of opinion or position with these clerk's offices not to allow it until 
the case would go all the way as high as it would on appeal. Um, but it's going to be, a, it, it, it'll be an ugly political battle once the judge hands down the decision. It's pretty clear where he seems to be wanting to go. He's, he's really kind of sent a very clear message that he's going to um, um, rule Michigan's law and constitution. Well, a jury trial would be decided by, uh, w the facts would be decided by, the, uh, by, by citizens. Uh, the, legal the legal questions would always be decided by the judge. Um, now, if, now, a judge can have a trial without having a jury where the judge serves both as the, ju as the jury and decides the facts and the law. But if there's a jury, the jury decides what the facts are. But again, when the, when the judge is directing them as to the law, he can have an awful lot of control over that. Yes? Well, both of both of those are not those are not necessarily inconsistent arguments. They are they are two arguments, and they're not necessarily adverse to each other. And so, for example, the the churches that have supported marriage as an institution, not only because God ordains it a certain way, but also because that system uh, has, a, as a matter of public policy. Uh, gives a child, for example, the best chances of um, success and, 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 and least chances of going to jail and other things. Uh, um, now that much of the political position has changed and where there is not as much support in the political um, state governments, for example, there are a lot of churches that are reconsidering the, the second point said, well, then let's just have marriage be in the church because that's where God, you know, God's ordained marriage is a certain way. You know, there is no reason necessarily to have a theocracy. But that goes back to, that. but, but for, for me, really, it's not about gay marriage. It's about free exercise of religious conscience. Should both sides be able to participate in the debate? And, and the Constitution says that you have freedom of expression. So either side, whether they're informed by secular um, uh, belief systems or uh, the church side informed by sacred belief systems, both sides ought to be able to participate uh, in, in that process. Now, if marriage gets redefined, it causes a big free exercise of religious conscience and a freedom of speech problem for the church because what inevitably has happened all around the world is whenever it gets redefined, then what follows right behind that is uh, government laws that require churches and, and other places to comply with that. You know, so, so, Pastor, you would maybe be told it would violate the law for you not to marry um, two men uh, or whatever. Uh, and so, um, 
that's, I think, the concern of the church is that the redefinition of it is, is going to interfere with their ability to have the free exercise of their beliefs as God has revealed them. I don't know if that answers the question. Because, again, they're not, those aren't opposite arguments. They're just two different arguments. That's why you perhaps should do it, but that's not how I'd argue it. <laughs> you know, no, this is very good. This is, very, this is a very good question because this is what this is all about, and that's what this book is about, actually, is, is that is an exceptionally good question because everything you say is true, and that's why you want to argue. Now the question is, how am I going to be effective? If you walk up to somebody who's informed by a secular belief system, some politician, and says that this is a moral issue, da-da-da, they're going to dismiss you or, or, or worse, you're going to get hate mail and bad things are going to happen. Um, the way I would do it is I would, characterize, I, I, would, I would characterize the issue of, look, whatever you're doing over here, don't forget that under the Constitution of the United States, unalienable liberty, fundamental liberty of freedom of speech and the free exercise of religious conscience um, belongs to these pastors in this room. And whatever government action you're doing here, understand that you can't do it in such a way that interferes with that liberty. And the problem is, is the redefinition interferes with that liberty. Now, if you want to go from a secular argument, and we're in a religious group here tonight, we're, we're, in a, we're, in a, we're all followers of Jesus Christ here. Um, so I've presented this in that context. I can give you the secular reasons, you know, why you would do it. I mean, there is some incredibly well-done um, empirical studies that have been empirically tested that has even taken the other side. The other side has had to adjust their arguments because the science is, is, is starting to be very clear. And the evidence of, okay, what is the, all right, we, we, we can't have, obviously there are single parents, there's all kinds of situations in, in, in today's world. But as a matter of policy, did God get it right? As a matter of policy, did God get it right? And it turns out he did. Because all the uh, peer-reviewed empirical research um, is showing that the children that are growing up in intact mother-father married families um, do much better in every category and are, much, and are at the bottom of all the bad categories, like getting arrested or alcoholism or anything else. And so, I mean, you can show those studies and, 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 and try to use that if you're trying to argue as a matter of public policy, you know, to a legislator why they should vote or not vote. Um, uh, why we stand and why I will go to jail if they try to take my pastor away for preaching the truth and why I'll die if they try to take away my pastor's right to preach the truth because God instituted it. And he made it very clear. This is my plan for your life. Yeah. We, I was looking around, and we got people from all around the state here tonight, but you get the prize for being, coming the farthest. So thank you. God bless you for coming here. <laughs>